Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the purple glyph morning podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 22nd, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And as always, my co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Heather Howard, a lecturer in public affairs and the director of the State Health Reform Assistance Network at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. You must have very long business cards, Heather. Professor Howard is a lawyer with extensive state and federal policy experience. She served as New York Jersey's Commissioner of Health and Senior Services, Senator Corzine's Chief of Staff, Associate Director of the White House Domestic Policy Council and Senior Policy Advisor uh, for then First Lady Hillary Clinton. At Princeton, Professor Howard directs two Robert Wood Johnson Foundation-funded programs, the State Health Reform Assistance Network, which provides technical assistance to states implementing the ACA, and the State Health and Value Strategies Program, which supports state efforts to enhance the value of healthcare by improving population health and reforming the delivery of healthcare services. A big welcome to the pod, Heather. Thank you for having me. So just a couple of quick things in today's lightning round. For me, a quick visit to the Office for Civil Rights at HHS. A betting person likely would think this was for an update on the ever-exciting audit phase two. But no, you'd be wrong, as OCR has slipped in a couple of big resolution agreements that seem to have some broad implications. First, an, a story broken by friend of the show, Charlie Ornstein. The ABC reality show NY Med apparently was filming in New York Presbyterian Hospital and recorded the death of a car crash accident. Uh, the patient's face was digitally obscured at transmission, but that didn't stop viewers, including his widow, from identifying him. Now, there is a civil claim, I believe, out there on this. Uh, and, of course, the TV network is arguing First Amendment. And the hospital argued that it was the family's fault uh, for publicizing the event and that any privacy right uh, died with the plaintiff's decedent. Well, if those arguments were made uh, to OCR, uh, they clearly failed to impress the government. And the resolution agreement calls for a payment of $2.2 million. So I'm guessing we won't be seeing any more hospital-based reality shows. In another case, a North Carolina orthopedic clinic is having to cough up $750,000 over a business associate issue. Uh, the underlying deal here was pretty nifty. A contractor took the clinic's x-rays and transferred them to digital. And in exchange, the contractor got to keep any silver it could harvest. Some 17,000 patients later, a problem, however. The clinic and contractor had failed to execute a business associate agreement. I'm guessing this was one of those kind of statement cases from the OCR because the enforcement arm thinks that covered entities just aren't entering into all the BAAs they should. Makes sense to so, me, Nick, yes. <laughs> yes. For good reason, uh, another friend of the show, Nick Bagley, refuses to give up on the implication of the Supreme Court's Gobey case. Uh, Gobey, as you will recall, threw an ERISA preemption-shaped spanner into the state all-payer claims databases. Uh, Nick has a neat solution that I paraphrase. Uh, the Labor Department could, through notice and comment rulemaking, clarify that ERISA's reporting requirements do not extend to this kind of data. 
and also offer its informed, considered view that state laws that seek such information pose no obstacle to achieving the objectives of the ERISA statute. And if you've been uh, uh, following this on uh, uh, social media, the Twitterati uh, have uh, have certainly been uh, uh, clicking in on this one. So let's hope Nick's idea uh, uh, finds some uh, some fruit here. And what about you, Frank? Yes, I agree with that. And actually, Nick, thank you, because you've given me some context over a uh, tweet storm I think I saw between Chris Walker of Ohio State and uh, Nick, I believe, on on this issue and all the deference concerns that it may raise. And as a administrative law casebook co-author, I definitely look forward to sinking my teeth into those issues. Um, my uh, contributions to our lightning round this week are a couple of... Uh, recent reports, studies on the state of the insurance markets uh, in the wake of the ACA. So we have a Bloomberg story by Zach Tracer on United Health exiting or to exit Obamacare in 16 states uh, to stem some losses. Now, I've seen that there are some plans or some insurers that are going to be entering these states, so perhaps it's all going to be a wash. But you know, just a few alarm bells, I guess, on the horizon uh, with respect to the sustainability of the ACA uh, exchanges. Next up is a piece in Modern Healthcare by Bob Herman talking about uh, a report that confirmed a growth in hospital-owned health plans. So perhaps if you know the model here is that uh, costs are being shrunk, uh, margins are being squeezed, maybe the first thing to go or something that is going to be going is sort of the role of the insurer as intermediary with some of these plans. But on the other hand, um, McKinsey released a report and 45% of these hospital insurance plans had a negative margin in at least one of the past three years. So an interesting warning sign there as well um, to that perhaps uh, insurance is a professional business and the providers might uh, take caution before diving in. Um, I also vaguely recall a piece by Zeke Emanuel that was in the New York Times, I think, a couple of years ago, predicting the end of insurers or severely diminished role for them um, in the wake of the ACA. It'd be interesting to revisit that in the wake of these uh, new reports. Well, now I want to transition to our conversation with Heather, and I thought that my lightning round contributions might help us with this transition because they are all about sort of the incredible growth, change, transformation in healthcare markets. And one of the things that, you know, I think is one of the light motifs or perhaps even motifs of the Affordable Care Act is encouraging change and innovation, not just in the act itself, but also very importantly, in terms of the administration and uh, subsidiary uh, implementation of the act. And that's something that Heather's been covering uh, in great detail uh, with the waivers, Section 1332 waivers. So I was wondering, uh, Heather, if you might be able to introduce our office or our audience uh, to some of your work in this area. Oh, thank you. And thank you again for having me on. You're right. I think, um, you know, the ACA is, is there's a lot in the ACA that leads to state innovation. And you mentioned, um, for example, in the lightning round, what we're seeing in terms of carrier participation um, in different exchanges and different um, states that are running their own exchanges have different tools that they can use to attract carriers and 
um, to respond to changes in their market. But there's an unheralded section of the ACA that deals with state innovation, and that those are the Section 1332 waivers. They don't have a catchy name yet, so people call them 1332 waivers. Sometimes they're called 2017 waivers because that is when they can first be in effect. They're also sometimes called Wyden waivers because the provision was written by Senator Wyden of uh, Oregon. But they're waivers that allow a state to waive significant portions of the ACA within some guardrails, which we'll want to talk about, if that state wants to fashion an alternative coverage model. Basically, I think when you, when you look back at the legislative history, um, Senator Wyden was, was coming from a state, Oregon, that has been pioneering health reforms and thinking, maybe my state can do it better. I think also he was reacting to some governors saying, we can do better. And I think in some ways he was calling their bluff. He was saying, okay, there'll be a provision in the law that will let you waive a lot of these requirements and let you do things differently. What's, I think, the most interesting part of the waiver and what's the most attractive piece for states is it allows states to basically cash out the money that would be coming into their state under the ACA and, and basically play with that money and, 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 and deploy that money in, in furtherance of a different coverage scheme. Um, so states can, can say, here are some shackles we don't like in the ACA. If you're a state that is, that has not embraced the ACA, it may be a way to get out from under provisions of the ACA. If you're a state that actually has embraced the ACA, it may be a way that you can build on the ACA and go beyond the ACA. But but in, in, in its at its core, um, they're called state innovation waivers in the statute, um, Section 1332, and states can apply at any point. And the first the first time they can be operational is January 1, 2017. So what about the the underlying premise here, Heather? I mean, the laboratory of the states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How much genuine political, cultural heterogeneity is there in healthcare? I mean, I can see, as some of your colleagues have written in this area, I can see sort of low populations uh, being an issue, but I'm not sure I see an awful lot else. So could you uh, talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's a great point. I mean, we've seen, I think, when when soon after the ACA was signed into law, and of course, we ended up with the Senate version of the bill, which allowed uh, states to set up their own exchanges if they wanted and created a federal exchange as a backdrop if states did not want to. Uh, your listeners will recall that the House bill would have created a national exchange. Many of us thought that that more states would set up their own exchanges, that states would seize on the opportunity to run their own exchanges because states tend to like authority that the federal, that the feds give them. Uh, they certainly would rather be active in, in um, enforcing their own insurance laws, an area where states have expertise and might not want the, fe- the federal government in that area. So, But of course, as we all know, as it turned out, um, f- um, only about 15 states have set up their own exchanges. So there's been less variety in that sense than you might have expected. And of course, we'll be talking about this for years to come, but uh, much of that has been, has, has, has been to do with the toxic politics of the ACA and states not wanting to implement the ACA. So up till now, we've seen less variation. We've seen the 15 states that run their own exchanges, and then you've got the interesting policy experiment of those exchanges within those 15, you're seeing some interesting variation. California and New York, for example, are standardizing plans on their exchange and so making it easier for consumers to compare their options. 
Um, in other states, you may see um, a much more a horizontal integration of all the different healthcare options with other social service social uh, service programs. So, in a state like um, New York, when somebody signs up for health insurance on their exchange, they can also actually sign up for um, TANF and 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 food stamps. So, states I think are starting to take those the the invitation to innovate. But to be honest, the first couple of years of implementation of the ACA has been difficult. We know there have been technological barriers to implementation, and so states have had to really focus on the core functionality of what they've been doing, getting that right. And I think now we're starting to see states turning towards 2.0, I like to call it, where they're thinking, what more can we do? If you're a state like New York, they've really ventured into the waters of um, surprise bills and out-of-network charges. States are starting to flex those muscles that they've had all along, but for the first couple of years where they've been dealing with the core implementation issues of the ACA, standing up an exchange, dealing with Medicaid expansion, you know, the ACA expects a lot of states. And of course, those expectations come at a time when states are dealing with significant constraints. They have to balance their own budgets. Their their own revenues are just now returning to the levels they were before the recession. So even states that wanted to robustly implement the ACA have faced challenges, financial and staffing and otherwise, um, that have limited their ability to be as um, innovative as they might have liked in the first couple of years. And I think states are now turning towards um, you know, thinking about flexing those muscles. An example I would give would be California, which is now considering uh, actually a 13, using a 1332 waiver to allow undocumented immigrants to be able to buy health insurance on their exchange. That's thinking outside the box. That certainly is. And it raises some fascinating questions about the degree to which the sort of laboratories of democracy model is going to be pursued. Um, and I will come round back to a concrete question, but just to, so to set the stage, one thing I worry a little bit about is it seems as though you have states like New York, California, that might be moving, say, toward a more active purchaser model or toward a more, when you talked about plan standardization, that would really be raising the bar in terms of what the insurers are going to be required to be doing. And then I imagine, although I'm not following this, you know, incredibly closely, but I imagine that there's going to be more and more states, uh, maybe Indiana was mentioned in one of our prior podcasts, and certainly red states, that might use the waivers to try to develop uh, a more stripped-down version, uh, copper plans, you know, going beyond bronze, or (laughs) whatever the case might be. And that is a really interesting sort of divergence that could happen, where you could have very, very different healthcare systems depending by the state. But you also mentioned in your article that we'll put on the show notes, Heather, this idea that this is not a get-out-of-ACA-free card, these waivers. And are there some core things that are really important that you know just cannot be deviated from? Great question. You're right. I think some of the states that were most intrigued by the opportunities available under a Section 1332 were states that were not fans of the ACA and were looking for ways to 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 get out from underneath provisions of the ACA and and actually there are substantial limits on their flexibility so so we've seen that some of those states that might have been most likely to take up a 1332 are may not be able to in the short term um, there are first of all there are statutory guardrails that that limit 
um, the flexibility of a state, and then subsequently the Obama administration has issued guidance that have that has flushed out those guardrails. But at its core, the guardrails in the statute say that for a state waiver to be approved, it must whatever their new coverage scheme is, and you know basically it's it's Congress saying we'll give you the money if you want to innovate, but to do so you have to demonstrate to the federal agencies in your waiver that you will cover the same number of people, that the coverage you provide will be just as affordable, that that coverage will be as comprehensive as the coverage that would have been provided under the ACA, and that that scheme will not increase the federal deficit. So those are the four guardrails, which are pretty substantial, and I think they would limit some of the things you mentioned. If a state, for example, wanted to move to providing HSAs for everyone in the state, I don't think that would meet some of these guardrails. I don't think coverage providing um, HSAs to everyone would, or, or or high deductible copper plans to everyone, that that would count as coverage that's as comprehensive and as affordable as might otherwise be provided under the ACA. So those guardrails, I think, have turned out to haunt some of the states that have been looking for ways to, um, ways perhaps to break free from the ACA. And that's why I do call it, it's not a get out of the ACA free card. I'm interested in the relationship between the 1132 waivers and the 1115 waivers. Um, I think one of the sort of expectations was that some of the states that had um, successfully applied for 1115 waivers. Frank brought up um, Indiana uh, with its HIP 2.0, for example, would be looking to blend that into a similar kind of model under an 1132. Um, and I think, as I read it, uh, the uh, the guidance uh, precludes that, or at least precludes it uh, for now. Um, do you think that's because uh, the federal government didn't have, you know, is still collecting data about the 1115s to see uh, their impact? Or do you think it's just political power that uh, the feds don't have to uh, uh, bend over to an Indiana uh, in the context of 1132? Because if they say, in, in the case of a 1332, excuse me, uh, because uh, if, if they say no, we're still going to have core ACA in place. I think it's a bit of both. You've touched on uh, something very interesting, which is from a state perspective, they've always had 1115 waivers available to them to innovate within their Medicaid system. And you mentioned, for example, Indiana and you know, the number of states, the, the, the states that have more recently expanded Medicaid under the ACA have been taking advantage of, you know, of, of implementing different models tailored to their states. And so one thing that a state would naturally want to do would be to try and combine and try and use as many of the tools available as are available to them. And certainly if I were back in my old job as New Jersey's Commissioner of Health and Senior Services, I'd be thinking, hmm, how do I bring all this together, right? And so so it would be natural for a state to want to combine combine an 1115 waiver that that covers their Medicaid program and a 1332 waiver that covers their um, people who are covered in their exchange population. And from a state perspective, it really makes sense because that's just one continuum of coverage. And if you can combine the waivers, then you have even more funding on the table that you're leveraging. And you can really think about how you can provide that continuum of coverage uh, for people from zero to 400% of poverty is 
is, is really the population you'd be able to cover. Now, uh, you would still face those guardrails, but what the Obama administration has done is in December, they issued um, new guidance and building on those guardrails, and they said that a state cannot combine those two waivers for the purposes of that budget neutrality test. And so why that problem, why that is of some frustration to states is it means you can't find savings on one side of the ledger and apply them to the other. And for a, a state, you know, you want to bring the Medicaid program into the picture because the Medicaid programs are so, so significant in terms of the amount of funding. Um, and so if you could put it all on the table, you could really, you could really try and recast your system, your coverage system, if you could put it all together on the table. I think from the administration's perspective, the idea of trying to review and manage that kind of a waiver is is daunting. And what's interesting about these waivers is you need to apply to both HHS and the Department of Treasury because you're dealing with those tax credits under the, the those advanced premium tax credits under the ACA. So you're not dealing with just HHS, which has, of course, expertise in dealing with 1115 waivers. You're now dealing with an entirely different federal agency. So I think it was probably an attempt to try and manage the scope of these waivers and a concern that if you if you open the door too much, they might become unmanageable. But as you look ahead to the next administration, I would I would um, expect the next administration, whoever is governor, is likely to be more flexible in terms of state requests, and they may be open to the combination of these two waivers. Especially if it's a Democratic administration, I think they might be open to uh, allowing a state to combine them if that's the kind of incentive a state needs to be able to get to a Medicaid expansion. A state that hasn't yet expanded Medicaid. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that the the type of very intricate, difficult decisions, uh, both on the macro and micro level here, are, are very interesting for the future of uh, the ACA and Medicaid policy. I wanted to give one really concrete example from your article in the Journal of Health Politics, Policy, and Law that I think helps dramatize how important it is to have some fine-tuning at the state level. And so in this article, you mentioned that at some income levels, an additional dollar earned could result in hundreds or even thousands of dollars in additional out-of-pocket spending. I guess presumably because, you know, if you're making $39,000 a year, you might be in one bracket, but then 39001 you go into another bracket for the purposes of premium assistance tax credits and cost sharing and all those things. And you mentioned that uh, the Minnesota Department of Health and Human Services said that a 1332 waiver could sort of create a, a smooth sliding scale so that people wouldn't be subject to these kinds of uh, step function effects uh, on them. And I think that's really exciting. Do you think that things like that, that sort of fine tuning, could be a source of bipartisan um, comity around the ACA in the future? Or do you think that this is unique to Minnesota? <laughs> it's the Minnesota nice example, right? It. Um I I hope so. I hope so. If you know, if if the politics on the ACA cools off a bit, then this does seem like an example where people could come together because it's clear, you know, from all all the research that's being done now that that one of the biggest barriers to people achieving coverage is cost, right? So even though we have fairly generous um, uh, premium tax credits and then cost-sharing reductions for people below 250% of poverty. Even with those subsidies, um, some people are finding the coverage unaffordable. And then when you add on these cliffs, and you know we understand why the cliffs are in there. Under CBO scoring, Congress was only able to put 
a certain amount of funding into into those um, tax credits, and you have to draw limits. But if you could smooth that 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 cost curve so that it wasn't you got to 250 and then you fell off the cliff, or you got to 400 and you fell off the cliff, if you could smooth it. Now to do so though, you ha- you have to move the money around. And so what Minnesota has they've had a healthcare financing task force that's been looking at this. They'd like to be able to move the money around, perhaps take uh, perhaps taking from you could shift money from higher up on the income scale and weight it more towards the lower end of the income scale. If you looked at, this is an example where a state would want to look at its population and say, here's where our coverage gaps tend to be. And if we could put more funding into this population, we think we'd get higher take up. And um, so that you could, you could deploy the, you you know, again, under 1332 waiver, if, if, if you're basically the federal government is allowing you to cash out all the money that would otherwise be coming into the state, and then you get to deploy it in a separate way. Now, one thing a state could do, and providers may not love this idea, but um, Minnesota has a basic health program, which is a Medicaid-like program that offers coverage up to 200%. And so it extends Medicaid provider rates up to 200%. And Medicaid provider rates tend to be lower, of course. And and so that gives the state more flexibility to take more of the money in the system and to put it more into buying down the uh, the beneficiary side of the equation and to buy down the cost-sharing side. And it, it's a much more affordable product for beneficiaries. So that's an example. Minnesota's already done that to 200% of poverty. And I could see Minnesota doing that above 200%, realizing that they've made plans affordable below 200%, but there's still work to be done above 200%. So that's one example. And, and Another example that's come up more recently is that um, Secretary Hillary Clinton in her campaign has proposed allowing states to use a 1332 to develop uh, a public option. And that might look sort of like what Minnesota is thinking about, which is allowing a state to develop a, a, a state-run plan that they would offer in the exchange that would compete with the private coverage being offered in the exchange. And if the state um, were using some of the, the, the money that's that they were cashing out that's already coming into the state and they could make that plan more affordable for consumers, that might be a viable competitive option on the marketplace. I, I take it you you see the, sort of the rounding off the rough edges options and something like the Minnesota plan as more likely than kind of Hail Mary passes, such as the um, the single payer program that Vermont gave up on, or I guess um, was it Colorado's Amendment sixty nine um, single payer ballot uh, piece? Uh, uh, unless of course that's that's trodden over by the super PACs, which <laughs> looks increasingly likely. Um, uh, though I, I I think that would that would probably involve some thirteen thirty two uh, waiver, wouldn't it? I think that's right. Yes, the Colorado plan um, assumes use of a thirteen thirty two waiver if the um, if the ballot initiative is enacted. But I, I think that's a big question, at least, you know, from seeing, as you said, that's going to be hard fought in Colorado. I think you're right, though, that in the short term, we're likely to see smaller 1332 um, waivers. And it, which is interesting, because of course, the promise under the statute, you know, seems seems to seems to be quite um, comprehensive. You think, boy, states could do a lot with this. But 
given the Obama administration's um, recent guidance, which does limit stakes flexibility, given given all that goes into preparing a waiver like this, I mean, it's basically like an 1115 on steroids because it's new. You have to do, you have to get your state legislature to authorize you to apply. You have to do stakeholder engagement. You have to conduct actuarial analysis. So that requires states to have funding to hire outside actuaries usually. And then you have to negotiate with, with the federal government. And as I mentioned, it's not just negotiating with HHS, it's negotiating with Treasury. So you've introduced a whole new variable. So I, I think it's pretty daunting wanting to states initially. And so what we're seeing are the first proposals that have come out have been more narrow. The example I like to point to is Hawaii. Hawaii has a, an employer mandate actually that predates predates ERISA. And they want to protect that, that provision. Um, um, they want to make sure the ACA doesn't affect what was working in their employer market, in their small group market. Um, and so they have, they are developing a waiver that would basically waive them out of small group provisions in the ACA so they could continue doing what they were doing. That's a, that's a tweak that is making, that is basically continuing something that worked in Hawaii. That's the kind of thing we'll see in the early times. I could see a state, for example, this is an interesting one in terms of the smooth edge, smoothing the edges. Native Americans are defined differently under Medicaid and under exchange coverage. And so you could see a state with a significant um, Native American population trying to align the definition there. Those are the kind of small bore waivers that we might see initially. But the, the statute does not limit a state to one 1332 waiver. So there's no risk to a state doing a, a a, a smaller waiver initially to, to sort of feel out the waters with the feds, with the federal government, and then preserving for later the bigger picture waivers. Um, and, and, and I think California is another example with this, the possibility of them pursuing a waiver for undocumented immigrants to purchase on the exchange. But they've signaled that in the out years, they might want to try and fix the, the kid glitch, the family glitch, or the other bigger issues with the ACA. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And by the way, we have um, on the show notes page, we'll also be linking to the State Health Reform Assistance Network, which I'd love to hear more about. I see that it has a resource library on 1332 waivers, that it has just a lot of information. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners just a sense of the, the work of the network and its scope and purpose. Uh, Thank you. It is. It's a program funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which of course has a has a, a generation has had a generational commitment to expanding access to health insurance coverage. And we've been providing technical assistance to states, helping them implement the Affordable Care Act. As I mentioned earlier, uh, although this is a federal law, many of the requirements under the ACA fall to states. And of course, these new requirements are coming just at a time when states uh, have faced. Um, you know, have faced uh, great constraints in terms of staffing and funding. And so we've been providing technical assistance to help states implement. And 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 also we've created this network where we help states learn from each other, um, from um, what's working and what's not working. And so it's been a real exciting opportunity to be to be in the trenches with the states and to help them move forward, and 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 develop systems that have been working. Of of late, we've been helping to document the impact of Medicaid expansion on states. We've seen um, in every state we've studied, we've seen that states have been able to save, um, save under their state budget when they expand Medicaid because they they've had state funded programs that they've been able to um, pull back on as people have gotten more more covered. So they've seen budget savings, and that's helping them fund their Medicaid expansion as they're looking at the out years when the federal funding drops below 100%. So that's an example of where we can develop state 
we can tell the story of, of, of how implementation is going in states and then help states um, that are that maybe not as far along as other states and help share those lessons um, across the country. So in the spirit of sort of broader types of innovation, um, most of the discussion we've had today and in the articles you've written has been with regard to, if I may characterize as sort of the financial pieces, uh, particularly um, seeing the potential for sort of moving money around, um, slightly tweaking some of the institutional pieces. But I was uh, particularly taken by a very short uh, paragraph in your um, the, uh, the Journal of Health Politics Policy and Law piece, um, where you talk about quality. Um, and there's a phrase there, exchanges could turn from the nudge to the hammer by linking APTC availability to quality scores. Could you flesh that out a little bit in just the last couple of minutes we've got with you? Sure. I think now that states are very interested in using their purchasing leverage to promote quality now and to really to add value to their healthcare systems. And so those states that have their own exchanges have a real tool there. I mean, you can do it in a variety of ways. You could, I mean, we're going to be seeing, of course, the federal star rating system with Medicare plans. States could um, prioritize on their web on their interfaces, they could give top billing to high quality plans. If the state wanted to go so far as being an active purchaser, as, as was mentioned earlier, they could only contract with plans that meet certain quality requirements. So it really can run the gamut from just transparency and disclosure, giving consumers more information about how to choose better plans, to a more muscular approach in terms of states contracting with um, only um, only carriers that they think meet their standards. And we have an important opportunity coming up for that. The um, the federal government is it will soon be intr- soon be releasing managed care rules rules for Medicaid managed care plans and as you know well know most states now have robust uh, managed care in their Medicaid programs and states are realizing these are multi billion dollar programs we can be better purchasers and more efficient purchasers so something we've been doing under my under the state health and value strategies program is helping states think about how did they use that that purchasing leverage to drive reforms. And, and of course, you want to drive reforms to save the system's money, but ultimately, this, the ultimate goal, of course, is to improve population health. So how can you put in quality metrics into those contracts and hold those, um, those health insurance carriers, those managed care companies accountable to those metrics? So I think you're, you're entering a new era where states are really thinking about how they can be, whether it's on their exchange or in their Medicaid program, or actually even also in to bringing in their state employee program. States are usually the largest purchaser of health care in, in their state. And how can they use that, um, that leverage that, um, that purchasing power to be much smarter purchasers and towards that end of improving population health? And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. Very special thank you to Professor Howard for joining us. Uh, she can be found on Twitter at Heather H. Howard. Great fun having you with us, Heather. Thanks so much. We post our show notes at twill.com. Please go to iTunes, rate the show if you've got a moment. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where will you be this week? I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>